over there. I'd invite you to find in your Bible 1 Peter, toward the back of the New Testament. We started a number of weeks ago a series through the Apostle Peter's first epistle, and we're still looking at the first two verses. We'll move on a little more rapidly next week. But our text today, beloved, is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It's also provided for you in the bulletin, if that would help for you to see. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you were here last week, I have a quiz for you. If you weren't, you're exempt. Last week, you heard explained the doctrine of election this glorious thing where God looks upon us in the deadness of our sins and he brings us to life. He gives us faith. He brings us to himself. He works what we are completely undesirable and able of doing for ourselves, the doctrine of election. Here's the quiz question. Did you enjoy that doctrine this week? Did you cherish it? Savor it? Did you even think about it? It should have made you bold, fearless, confident, comforted, alive with the love of God. This doctrine should make a difference in our lives. And I think that's evident in this text, the way Peter flows so fluidly from identifying those who follow Jesus as elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the next thing out of his mouth is verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. I've struggled all week with why that's the next thing out of Peter's mind, having addressed You, believers, as elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I think what he's doing is he wants you to maximize the benefit of your election. There are practical fruits of God calling you into relationship with himself. Proofs, as it were, that you really are a follower of Jesus. Three things. You're being sanctified in the Spirit. You're obeying Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. Let's look at these three things. They're designed to help you relish your election. Number one, sanctified by the Spirit. The word sanctify means to set apart. In your New Testament, it's often translated holy, so that when Paul addresses Christians, He calls them saints. That's the word from which we get set apart, sanctified, holy ones. 
There are many things God calls his people, beloved, his bride, friend, faithful. This is one of them. You're sanctified. Where do we find this concept arise in the, new, in the Bible? Right from the start, Adam and Eve are set apart or sanctified from the rest of creation by God's special creation and by virtue of bearing his image. There's nothing in all of the creation that stands in relationship to God like human beings. Human beings are sanctified by virtue of being made in God's image. Then we see the case of Noah. Noah and his family are set apart. They're sanctified from the judgment floodwaters in the ark. And then when God begins to work out a relationship with his people and a covenant on the earth, he calls Abram, sets him apart to make him a father of many nations. That nation becomes Israel. They are set apart. They are sanctified as the people of God, the people of God's own possession. They even have their own land that is set apart from all the other lands in the world. And the special place God dwelt in that land, the tabernacle, was sanctified. It was set apart. You couldn't waltz into the, sanct to the sanctuary of God like you can this space. This isn't a sanctuary. This is a meeting space. You're the sanctuary of God. You're the place God dwells now. But I get ahead of myself. And those who served in the tabernacle, the priests, were set apart, sanctified for that work by the sprinkling of water and blood. And all the articles they used were set apart, sanctified by the sprinkling of water and blood. So the idea of sanctified, set apart, goes way back into the Bible. The point is, when God calls you to himself, he sets you apart for himself. Is that wonderful? Is that stunning? Is that awesome? You're his precious possession. You belong to Jesus. That bears meditating on. And we understand this humanly. You don't need to be a Christian to understand this. Of all the children that go to your children's school, when you go pick up your children after school, there are one or two or three that mean more to you than anything in the world. They're yours. They're sanctified. They're set apart. If you came to my house in Virginia, I would show you an NFL football, a game football for the Super Bowl 50. Brand new, never been used. My son, the photojournalist, went to the Wilson factory when they were making the Super Bowls for Super Bowl 50. They insisted he take one as a token. He came home and gave it to me, his dad. Guess what? You will never throw that ball on the street. We will not use that ball at the beach. That sucker is set apart. It will never be scuffed. Come to my home. We might do one of these in the grass, but it's special. Set apart. You are not ordinary. You're not a worm. You're not worthless. You're not trash. God delights in you, no matter how you feel. The Christian gospel seems to promise too much that we are one with God. Paul's way of putting it is Christ in you. God dwells in you if you're a follower of Jesus. 
Peter, in the next epistle, begins 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we are partakers of the divine nature. Are you kidding? No. Set apart. There's nothing in the universe more important to God than those who belong to his son. And do you see the implications of that for the way you and I interact with each other? If you don't see yourself that way, you won't treat other people that way. Do you see others in the church as utterly and absolutely precious to Jesus? I mean, Jesus said when you're having an argument with somebody or you're tempted to treat them in a certain way, he says, you need to see that's me. You're treating that, you're treating me. As much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So when I get cross with my wife or my kids, I better stop and think about how do I want to treat Jesus? It's pretty serious stuff. This word sanctification is used in the Bible in two senses. Children, if you want to impress your Sunday school teachers, tell them next week that sanctification is both definitive and progressive. In other words, we are both sanctified once, punctiliar, we're at one time set apart at our conversion. That's, that's definitive sanctification. From death to life, darkness to light, unbelief to belief, captivity to Satan, slavery to Jesus. We're set apart one time, that makes us a saint, a holy one, a set apart one. That begins a process in our lives of a lifelong transformation into the character of Jesus. Set apart people begin to change. Why? Because God the Father who set you apart wants you to look like your son, and he will do that by the work of his spirit. If you notice in verse 2, this is a very Trinitarian passage. The Father wills your salvation for obedience to Jesus in the sanctification of the Spirit. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 29. Brings these concepts very tightly together. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to, how would you be tempted to fill in the blank? To be saved, to go to heaven. He predestined to, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. The goal of your election is to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Earth history is essentially God bringing men and women into relationships with himself so his son Jesus has brothers and sisters. That's what salvation's about. Jesus has brothers and sisters. And the point is that they look like him. The Father wants everyone in the world to look like He's so in love with His Son. He's so infatuated with the glory of His Son. He wants everyone to look like His Son morally, ethically. And so the work of sanctification is God working in you so that you reflect more and more back to God the Father, the glory of the image of His Son. This is ongoing. It's progressive What's he got to do? He's got to expose in you what isn't Jesus and make more in you what is Jesus, just to put it very simply. Paul gets at it this way in Colossians 3. 
He says, don't lie to one another. Fill in the blank. Don't fight, don't lie, don't lust after, don't deceive, don't gossip about, whatever it is. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after its creator. You're a new creation in Christ, and he's renewing you into that image. And so the Spirit of God needs to go deep into your heart, into your attitudes and your motives so that you change from the heart and do the right thing for the right reason. Jesus requires, beloved, that you do this with critical self-reflection. Or let me put it negatively. It's impossible to be conformed to the image of Jesus without critical self-reflection. Here's the way Jesus pictured it for us in Matthew 7. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and don't notice the log that's in your own? Well, why don't you? Stop and think about that. You need an answer. Why why is that? And he goes on, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly enough to see the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus is saying you need to do the hard work of asking yourself, how is my pride undermining my desire to bless other people, to treat them as Jesus? How's my pride doing that? Get with a confidant. Ask your spouse if you've got the courage. Get the Bible open. Get a prayerful spirit and begin to ask your soul, where am I self-deceived? What do I do that's self-promoting? Where am I self-reliant? How am I self-protective? And whatever's motivating you there doesn't compare to being Jesus' priceless treasure. And you will find your heart being gradually relieved of the need to defend, to promote, to be liked when you believe how much Jesus loves you. That's the first point, probably the longest. God wants you maximizing the benefit of your election sanctification in the spirit. Secondly, obedience to Jesus Christ, what I'm calling a better loyalty. So one of the ultimate tests of humanity is to whom are you loyal? And this is where humanity got it all wrong right from the beginning of earth's history. The devil tempted Adam and Eve to be loyal to themselves ahead of God. He might as well have said this, no one can tell you what happiness is for you. You must decide that for yourself. Do you recognize that? That is virtue in your culture. No one can tell you what happiness is for you. You must decide for sure. That is what plunged humanity into death and ruin. That sentiment. And our culture sees it as virtue. We've got real problems because of that. Isn't that an invitation to anarchy? Only I can decide for myself what happiness is for me. What if happiness for me is destroying you so I can take your things? Survival of the fittest. You people can't live that way. That's absurd. And they didn't make themselves. God made us. God has the right to tell us how to live. He's the king. He ought to be obeyed. He deserves it, and it's good for you. So that it's no mistake that when Jesus calls people to himself, he does so in terms of his kingship. How does he do it in the Bible? You know some of you. Follow me, not yourself. You don't determine what happiness is for you. Your creator does. Follow me. 
You're not self-made, so you don't have self-determining powers over your life. Follow me. That could be a whole long sermon series, so I won't, let me just keep going. Jesus said, take up your cross and die to yourself. Could you get more graphic? To be a follower of Jesus means it's crucifixion to your pride and self-will constantly. Jesus even put it this way. You must love me so much that the affection you have for parents and brothers and sisters looks like hatred. That's how Jesus put it. You love me that much. Take my yoke upon you. This is, you may not, if you weren't, if you were a farmer in the ancient world, you know what this meant. A yoke joined two oxen together. So they went in the same direction. We're yoked to Jesus. I'm not determining happiness for myself. I will kill myself if I do. And probably you along with me. We're yoked to Jesus. That is a privilege. That is a glory. That is true humanity. Because it's good for us and he deserves it. Paul, I think, in, in, in Titus 2, just gets the glory of this when he writes, for the grace of God has appeared, epiphany. What's that? Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does that salvation do? Training us or coaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, Waiting for the blessed hope, we'll hear more about that in 1 Peter, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you hear in that sanctification? Do you hear in that definitive sanctification? You're his possession. And now he's working in you to deliver you from the insanity of giving in to your passions and being ruled by them and being ruled by something much better, the very power of Jesus and his spirit. It's just a mercy of God to deliver, because if you let your passions rule your heart, you know what you're like. (laughs) Don't you? So what does a life look like under the control yoked to Jesus? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's all the stuff you want people to interact with you with. And that's the way you want your kids to turn out. And that's the way you want your spouse or your roommate to treat you. That's the way you want your elders and your deacons to live with each other and with you, the fruit of the Spirit. Last point. What's the point? Maximize the benefits of your election. This is practical. It's got feet to it. Sprinkling with his blood or a clear conscience. Now, that may sound strange to you. If you have no affiliation with Christianity, that may sound strange. We've had a lot of allusions to it throughout the worship service. You know, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's angel. You may just think, this sounds really weird. You may think that. I understand. It's possible that the Gentile converts in the churches to which Peter wrote also found it strange. And they would have had to look to their fellow Jewish converts, perhaps, to make sense out of this. This phrase, sprinkled with his blood, 
brings together the historical fact of sacrifices in the Jewish religion and the need for a clear or clean conscience. Let's talk about this clean conscience thing for a second. What's that all about? God built you for his holy presence. He built you to savor, relish, enjoy, adore, and see yourself defined by the holy presence of God. And anything we do, think, or say contrary to God's character should what? Trouble us, should alarm us, terrify us. Think of it this way. Life is going from point A to point B and it's a minefield. And there's one path through the minefield. And there are IUDs, all those, whatever you call this thing. I might have said the wrong thing. And so you're walking this path, what? Terrified of a misstep. I know you're snickering and I know why. You're terrified. And it's God's law in particular, beloved, that specifies the safe way through living as a reflection of his image. And so when we were at variance with God's will or character, we should be ill at ease. We're stepping out into mind territory. And if your conscience is properly working when you're at variation with the law of God, your conscience should be ill at ease. It should be begging for cleansing. The Bible frightfully talks about people whose consciences are so poor that God gives them over to their wretched lifestyles. That's in Romans chapter 1. There's another passage in 1 Timothy where Paul talks about people whose conscience is seared, cauterized, literally. If a doctor needed to you know, seal off a nerve or a blood vessel from it just sear it. So people become so hardened to right and wrong. They don't care. Do you see how properly understood the, doc understood the doctrine of election should prick your conscience? God has done this for me. How can I not love him with my whole heart? How can I not respond to God in wholehearted devotion? So maybe your conscience is troubled this morning by poorly misplaced words. Maybe you've even lusted towards somebody this morning in this assembly. Self-pity, pride, defensive. The offering plate went around, you kind of felt, mm, I'm not as generous as I should be. You hear other people expressing gratitude to God, oh, I'm not as grateful as I. You came into worship and you realized, my heart is cold towards God. Your conscience is telling you that. I've been overly critical, judgmental. I've been annoyed with my wife, and what's with that? I've blown an opportunity to be salt and light. I've overindulged food, substance, entertainment. I'm avoiding a hard thing, even though I know it's right. So what do you do when your conscience is poking, it's begging for cleaning? What do you do? There are some really bad ways we silence our conscience. One is 
try to do good things. I was bad, I tried to tip the scales and do good things. A lot of people who don't believe in God, they have a conscience. They try to compensate for their conscience piercing their soul by, I'll be good, I'll try harder, I'll be religious. Or just compare yourself to bad people so you can feel better about your conscience. Exhibit A, Hitler. I am not as bad as Hitler. Fact, fact. I'm not. Could I be Hitler? Could I? Yes, so could you. Some of you, you're just going easy on yourself. Your conscience is pricked. You're just saying, I'm not going to, you may not consciously, I'm not going to read the Bible because every time I do, I'm convicted. So just stop reading your Bible. Stop telling Christian friends where you're screwing up. So just lower the standards. You'll feel better about yourself, maybe. Or justify yourself by vilifying other people. I do this in my heart. I can vilify so-and-so because of so-and-so. Somehow that bolsters me. Or how about this one? Everybody's doing it, it must be okay. If God's not doing it, it's not okay. Here's the problem. None of those things can remove the stain of sin on the conscience. Sin stains your conscience like a tattoo with lots of ink. Sin stains your conscience. There is no human activity to remove the stain. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I've cleansed my heart, I'm pure from sin? Who can say that? Psalm 133, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Or Romans 3, 19 to 20, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. The law of God probably understood basically is the biggest shut up mechanism in the universe. It just closes mouths. I can say nothing to God in the face of the law except guilty as charged. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight so since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Peter is answering your greatest fear, the root of all anxiety, getting what you deserve by casting one eye on Mount Sinai and one eye on Mount Calvary with this phrase, sprinkled with his blood. In Exodus 24, we've done the Exodus. Israel has been delivered from Egypt, from bondage. They're free. They're God gathers his people on the great day of assembly to himself at Mount Sinai. The mountain shook with the presence of God. If that wouldn't work at getting your conscience clear, I don't know what would. Well, <laughs> Moses built an altar, 12 pillars, and sacrifices were offered. This would have recalled for the Israelites, hey, we just had those Passover lambs sacrificed on the eve of our deliverance of the Exodus. Moses took half the blood, sprinkled it on the altar. He took the other half, and he sprinkled it on the people. Perhaps taking a hyssop branch, dipping in the blood, and going like this. Hence, David in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. 
that people were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And so that this would be remembered year after year in Leviticus 16, the, 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 the day of atonement is established where once a year the priest did the same thing. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the people. This went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the point is, if you're witnessing this, you're a faithful Israelite, you're realizing the animal is getting what I deserve. And strictly speaking, you would need to look in your conscience beyond a pigeon, a bull, a goat, or a lamb. Because the life is in the blood, as David Miner pointed out last week as we came to the table. The life is in the blood. What you owe God for your sins is your life's blood. And then Jesus appears, and his cousin John the Baptist says, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It turns out that all these sacrifices point to a man who is the Lamb, a man who is God, Jesus Christ. And so having moved from Sinai to Calvary, it is there on Calvary Jesus makes the final offering for sin, his sinless blood. His life is sufficient to cleanse our consciences. This is the text we saw earlier in the sermon that John Daly read, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's no other basis, no other confidence. On thy grace I rest my plea, we sang, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. So the mercy of God, the justice of God, the love of God, the saving grace of God, all join and with one voice point to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit takes that sacrifice, his blood, and applies it to your conscience until your conscience says, that's enough. That's right, I'm clean. This table is designed, and look, that's a hard thing, right? Because your sins are more real to you than invisible grace. The table is meant to make visible grace. So this morning, when you drink the wine, ask the Holy Spirit to make more real to your heart and your conscience the cleansing of Jesus Christ's blood then the wine itself, full assurance of faith. And it's another sermon how he goes on and talks about what that does to our relationships in the church. But it's time to sing and partake of these elements. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that you want our consciences clean. Thank you for them. Thank you for the law of God revealing your character that pricks our conscience, that convicts us, that shows us where we are perilously at variance with the glory of your character. What a wonderful thing. Spare any of us in the room with a seared conscience. Bring us back into the light, into the knowledge of you. And then speak to our conscience, Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of Jesus' cross, the glory of his blood. That alone is enough to make us clean. 
accepted, righteous, pure, lovely in your sight. Use the sacrament this morning to that end for my weak faith and that of my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.